If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 6. If not, majority of the passages will be up on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 6. I want to start this morning with a question. I want you to ask this question. Do I really want my life to point to Christ? I get it. You, you may be going, oh, well, I don't really know Christ, and that's okay. So just, I think, uh, be some thoughts in here that will be at least provoking hopefully encouraging. But if you consider yourself someone who follows Jesus, I want you to ask the question, do I really want my life to point to Christ? Another way of thinking about it is, do I really want to imitate Christ? So do I want to live in a way that imitates or images, if you will, Jesus? And then I, mean, I think you have to ask this question, well I, well, I might desire that, but do I, like, do I really, right? So do, are, are there actions that show this? Am I seeking to know who Christ is? Am I seeking to repent when I don't live like Christ? You know, right? Those different indicators that really show whether or not I genuinely, truly want to use my life to point to Christ. Just a couple quick comments on that thought uh, First of all, we have to be careful because imitating Christ, following Christ, pointing to Christ is not about gathering facts and then just simply trying to replicate those facts. That's what uh, Christianity has been largely kind of whittled down to is, okay, well, what would Jesus do? And then let me go do that. You guys are familiar with the phrase, what would WWJD it's not a bad phrase. It's, it's actually a great phrase when you understand correctly what it means to imitate Christ. It's not just about simply copying His words and His behavior. That's easy. I mean, honestly. It's easy to look at someone and just imitate them. The issue, though, is that pointing to Christ in a life that images Christ truly, fully, holy is that this pursuing of likeness to Jesus only happens because of our union with Christ because of our connectedness to Christ because of our oneness with Christ which is as as we've studied before is not our doing that's God's doing and then out of God's doing comes our imaging Christ our living like Christ, are pointing to Christ. You see, we pursue likeness to Jesus only because of our union with Jesus. We pursue union, or pursue likeness to Jesus. We live a life that points to Jesus only because of our union with Jesus. I don't have time to flesh out the, that union and what that means exactly, but we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. You see, it's only through Jesus that we're able to bear the fruits of righteousness, that we're able to live rightfully before God and before the world. And Christians are not this group of people who've just figured out how to, to be morally good. 
There are people who have been rescued by God and set free to live morally good lives. It's not because of anything we've done. Therefore, we should be very humble and gracious people. It's only through Christ that we're able to bear such fruit. And what we see in the story of Stephen, hear me, was not sinlessness. Stephen, as we will read here in this chapter, a couple chapters here, was not perfection. He was not a Christian without sin. But instead, what we see was a man who was empowered to reflect his Savior, to image Christ in a very powerful and profound way. I want to this morning, we're going to eventually by the time we're done, Lord willing, uh, go from chapter 6 verse 8 all the way through chapter 8 verse 3. Um, so uh, hopefully that won't take us terribly long this morning. I'm going to try to move quickly. I'm going to read like a portion of it and then talk and then a portion and then talk and a portion and then talk as opposed to reading the whole thing like we typically would do. I want to start with you in chapter 6, verse 8 through 15. It says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenaeans, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, or gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, as we study these words, Father, may, may we see the face of your Son, Jesus, Father. I know we don't have a, an image that we have physically seen, but we see His image in these words. We see His reflection and the revelation of Yourself and Your Son and the Spirit in these words. So, Father, may we, may we see that face. Uh, if it's in Your Son's name we pray, Amen. Amen. Here's what I want to give you. Here's what I want you to see through this story. I want you to see four ways that Stephen's life points to Christ. Four ways in which his life images Christ and ways in which you and I can and should and if we are full of the Spirit will indeed point to Christ in this way. The first is this. Stephen's grace and power points to Jesus. He had grace and power. 
How often do you think of Christians as those being marked by grace and power? Honestly, how often? How often would people describe yourself as being full of grace and power? Look what, how Luke has already described Stephen. Now you can go back and look at this later, but he describes him in verse 3 of chapter 6 as a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Then in verse 4 he describes him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then now, just a couple verses later, he describes him as a man full of grace and power. Right? Stephen was a man full of faith, wisdom, the Spirit, grace, and power. And as such, he was doing great wonders and signs among the people of God and among those who were not the people of God. He was doing exactly what Jesus did. He was doing exactly what his Savior had done. Jesus was full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power. And he, Jesus, was changing the world, was setting it, turning it upside down. Nowhere did Jesus go where his grace and power did not leave the place unchanged. No conversation did he have where his grace and power was not at work in his words, in his demeanor, in his uh, contemplations, in his dialogue, in his arguing even. Nowhere was it untouched by his grace and power. Here's what I want you to note. See, you and I are controlled by whatever fills us. We are controlled by whatever makes us feel full. Whatever is filling you is controlling you. If you are filled by the affirmation of another, then that person whose affirmation you want controls you. Even if that person you like don't get along with. This doesn't have to be like a glorious relationship. If you're filled by joy through ideal circumstances, if that fills you, then those circumstances which surround you will control you. That, whatever controls you, is whatever is filling you. Stephen was filled with grace and power. Grace and power from his Redeemer. And so, that controlled him. The grace and power of God is what controlled him. But if you are filled, again, with grace and power, great faith and wisdom... You will live like Christ. Your life will point to Christ. Necessarily, it will point to Christ. Listen, being full of grace, let me caveat this a little bit. Being full of grace doesn't look like overlooking sin. It looks like lovingly and appropriately dealing with sin, both in your life and in the lives of those around you. So let me ask you this question. What do you seek to be filled with? What do you seek to be filled with? Does your pursuit say, I really want to be like Christ? Like, I really want to be like Him. I really want to image Him. Or does your pursuit simply say, I like the idea of Jesus? Like, I like the idea of a Savior. That sounds good. So just tell me what I need to do to get that Savior, to get that ticket to heaven. Or, or does my life really look like someone who says, I love Christ and I want to live in such a way that exalts 
him. Just to give a practical example and to make sure I'm very clear and drawing appropriate lines, if, if you're not in the Scriptures multiple times a week, then you probably simply like the idea of Jesus rather than loving Him personally. So what are you filled with? What are you filled with? Whatever you're filled with is that which you will point to. If you're filled with the grace and power of Christ, you will point to. You will point to the grace and power of Christ. Second thing that Stephen how Stephen points to Christ is that Stephen's unanswerable wisdom points to Christ. Stephen's unanswerable wisdom points to Christ or to Jesus. Let's talk about this wisdom for a, a few brief moments. This kind of wisdom, I just want to make sure it's clear that we understand this, does, does not necessarily come with age in life. This does not necessarily come with age and life. And unless you think it's just something Matt wants to plug in here in this part of the sermon, you'll see in a few moments that this is actually very, uh, is pictured very well in this passage. Because you have very aged, supposed believers in this passage who are clearly not wise. So wisdom does not necessarily come with age. It comes with our union with Christ. It comes from our union with Christ. And our union with Christ is connected to necessarily to our abiding in His Word. Indeed, let me flesh this out. Because again, this is what we see pictured here in Acts. The more life you live without appropriate time in the Scriptures, the more foolish you actually get. Not the more wise you get just because the time clock is clicking. It actually is quite the opposite. Because here's what happens. The more life you live, and listen, this goes for all of us young people as well, or those, I guess I'm getting older now, but you younger people than me as well. The more life you live, and the more life you live without learning the Scriptures and learning to interpret them through the Scriptures, the more life you will learn in a compounding fashion to interpret and understand wrongly. Indeed, foolishly. Again, that's what was happening with the spiritual leaders dealing with Stephen. That's why he retells their history. What's he doing? He's going back through their history. That we're getting ready to read in just a few moments. He goes back through their history and says, let me help you through the word interpret what happened in your past so that you might be wise. And what happens as he does that, as he explains to them their life history, the age of their life, the, the time clock clicking, let me explain this to you. And as he does this, it says that they were unable to answer his wisdom. So what we learn is that wisdom does not necessarily come with age. 
Indeed, if, let me repeat this again, the more life you live without learning the Scriptures and walking in the Spirit, the more life you learn to interpret wrongly. That's why they found themselves where they were at. The leaders, that is. second thing I want you to see is that I want to take a look at the phrase that says that they were not able to withstand his wisdom. What does that mean? Not able to withstand his wisdom. First of all, I want you to just clearly say that can look two different ways. It looks a particular way here. It looks like the latter point, but it can look two different ways. When someone cannot withstand the wisdom, they have two options. They can concede meaning people ultimately agreeing with the argument, agreeing with the wisdom, surrendering to the evidence, surrendering to the proclamation. That when, you're, when you're thinking about, again, his unanswerable wisdom pointing to Christ, so our desire is to have unanswerable wisdom that's only going to come from our union with Christ through abiding in the Word and walking in the Spirit. So sometimes people can concede. They will turn in agreement and they'll walk. But I want you also to understand that having unanswerable wisdom might also look like someone's heart becoming hardened. Someone's conscience being seared. It can look like gnashing of teeth. This is someone whose heart is closed off to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that they're necessarily lost or, or not uh, redeemed, but they're acting like someone who doesn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because someone who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ and loves Christ will and should respond. That's awesome. You can hear them way over top of guitar. I love it. So uh, it's, it's, it's soak in this moment, and then I'm going to uh, be a prophet for a second. You all can surely sing louder in here, okay? Surely you can sing louder in here. I'm just going to wait till the song's over. I love it. I absolutely love it. Do what? Oh, yes, the younger ones. There you go. It's good. Oh, wow. So we have a screamo one in there, too. That's fantastic. <laughs> there we go. So what I want to do see is that notwithstanding wisdom, again, looks two ways. It look, look like conceding. It can also look like someone responding not so well. I, I, for some of us, as, as we think about having unanswerable wisdom, for some of us this means that this person may not speak to us again. Do you think these people were interested in speaking to Stephen again? We'll find out in a few moments. No, they weren't. Oh, they just won't ever talk to me again. Listen, I, there, there's, I, I don't want to caveat this too far, but right, there's a balance between just being in, in a lack of wisdom, 
being overly offensive, that's one thing. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about loving Christ, walking in the Spirit, saying what needs to be said because you love that person, you have compassion for that person. That's what I'm talking about. For other brothers and sisters, when this happens, this means that they may lose their life, right? I mean, think about that. We're afraid of how someone might relationally respond. Stephen's about to lose his life. I just put that in perspective for us. Look, I, I think in general, if you're not experiencing some stones being thrown your way, you're probably not speaking the truth. I mean, I mean, even like, even within, with, with husband and wives, with your kids and stuff like, man, when you speak in a way that reveals the heart, because the heart is generally evil, it's going to throw some stones back. Listen, speaking with wisdom doesn't mean that you will always win the other person. That's just what I want you to walk away with. This, this unanswerable wisdom does not mean that they sided with Stephen. Because then we could draw these conclusions. Therefore, if you don't win the other person, then you must have lacked wisdom. That's not necessarily true. However, speaking with wisdom, unanswerable wisdom, will always reveal the heart. It will always reveal what's inside the other person. And it will indeed do these two, one of these two things. It will either help the prideful, hardening heart to harden quicker, or it will help the humble, softening heart to soften quicker. One of those two things will happen. Unanswerable wisdom does this. So do you speak with unanswerable wisdom or un, undeniably God's wisdom? Do you speak in a way that exposes the hearts of the people around you? Children, your spouse, co-workers. I'm not talking about speaking in a way that you're just trying to be mean or you're trying to, trying to get on their tail or you're being judgmental. That's, that's, not what, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about talking in a way that shows them that God loves them. He sent Jesus to die for them. Like that, and, and, and how God understands and wants us to understand this life and this world. That will expose what's inside of a man and a woman's heart. So do you speak with unanswerable wisdom? Let's move on to Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. Um, you... I'm just going to read a couple sections from this chapter. I encourage you to read this uh, later if you haven't already. Starting verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? So these things you're being accused of, are they so? And Stephen said, right? He goes on now and he's going to retell this history. I want you to jump to verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying... Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, 
God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, or living, living words to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. Skip to verse 51. Stephen says to those in his presence, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. Stephen's understanding of the righteous one points to Jesus. Stephen's understanding of the righteous one points to Jesus. All right, so here's what happens. Stephen was arrested based on this accusation. And the accusation was that Stephen was speaking against two things. He was speaking against the temple, or this place of of gathering, the place where they would sacrifice. He was speaking against the temple. And second, he was speaking against the law. Two very, 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 and for good reasons, important aspects of the Jewish faith. Indeed, important things for Christians as well. And he was basically, the accusation was that because of his understanding of Jesus, we don't need these two things anymore. We don't need the temple, we don't need the law. So he's saying these two things that are, that are paramount in Jewish faith, you no longer need because of Jesus. This was a big accusation. I mean, they had reason to be really angry. The chief priest says, is this true? So here's what Stephen's doing. Stephen's answering two questions. Here's what he does. He answers two questions, and then he gives them the answer to a question they did not ask. He gives them the answer to their two questions, then gives them an answer to a question that they did not ask. Here was the first two questions. Are you speaking against the temple? And the second question is, are you speaking against the law? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to kind of summarize for you Stephen's speech, particularly since I did not read it. But I want to summarize for you Stephen's speech and help you see just an overview of what Stephen is doing at this time. And, and Timothy Keller was really helpful in helping me summarize this, Pastor Keller. The first thing he was saying to them is this. We do not need the temple to find God. We do not need the temple to find God. That's the first thing. That was his answer as he was, were you speaking against the temple? The answer is, you do not need the temple to find God. And here's what he does. He, he, he walks through Israel's history. He says, God met Abraham, and Abraham certainly didn't have a temple. 
So how do you explain God meeting with Abraham? God met Joseph in Egypt, and they certainly didn't have a temple in Egypt. They had temples, it just wasn't this temple. Third, God met Moses in the wilderness. And he didn't have a temple, he met him at a burning bush. And even after the temple was built, Stephen argues, God still met with people outside the temple. And then he takes it a a step further and says that God does, he quotes, uh, I think it's Isaiah 66, God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. So this temple that you've built, not only does God meet people outside this temple, as good as the temple is in in, in its importance and purpose and place in history, but God also doesn't dwell in that place made by your hands, by any human hands. So this is what, here's what happened. This created a problem. Because for the leaders, if you have no temple, how are you supposed to sacrifice? How are you supposed to, to offer up repentance and the payment for sins and therefore have relationship with God, right? So this, is, this makes a, a, a logical problem for them and, and an understandable to some extent their frustration. If you have no temple, how are we supposed to be right with God and how are we supposed to therefore have a relationship with God? How can we meet with God without sacrifices? And Stephen is arguing that we don't need the temple to find God. Second, he turns to the law. Stephen turns to the law. And here's what he does here. Under Moses, he says, you didn't obey the law. Under Aaron, you didn't obey the law. Under Amos, you didn't obey the law. So here's what Stephen's doing. He's saying to you religious leaders, to you who are accusing me of doing away with the law, of going against the law, here's the reality. The law is valuable and good. It's It is. It has its place. But the problem is that you have never kept it, even though you defend it like you have. And by the way, you never will keep the law. That's Stephen's argument. He's not saying the the law, we get rid of the law and the law's junk. No, he's saying, look, look, the law is good. It's important. You can't put it aside. The problem is, though, you have never obeyed it and you never will. That is Stephen's argument. So now we have a real problem. (laughs) Yes, we need to obey the law, but we can't do it. And that's Stephen's argument. That's what he says to the self-righteous leaders in his presence. Now Stephen moves into the third point, answering a question that they did not ask. So not only did you not obey the law, but Stephen says, I've noticed this pattern in Israel's history. There's a pattern there that you all need to see. Every Here's the pattern. Every time God sends a deliverer, Every time, 
that deliverer is rejected by the people he was sent to save. Every time. Joseph was sent to deliver his people, and him you sold into slavery. Watch Moses' interaction with his people, particularly after, right before going into the wilderness. When he asserted himself, they rejected him. What, are you going to deal with me just like you did that guard? David, David sent to deliver God's people, and he spends much of his life a fugitive, fearing for his life. Every time God sends a prophet, someone to deliver his people, he is persecuted. This is the pattern of Israel's history. This is the pattern of your life. I would say, in many ways, this is the pattern of our lives as well. And then here's what he does in 51, 52, and 53 that we read already. 51 and 53 is the problem. 52 is the solution. In 51, he says, you stiff-necked people. What's he saying? Your hearts are hardened. Your consciences are seared. And then in 52, he says this, you even killed the one who announced the righteous one. You killed, you, you killed John the Baptist, and you've killed and murdered the righteous one. He was sent to deliver you, and you murdered him. You didn't just let him die, you murdered him. You killed him by your own volition. And the reality is, is that you have never kept the law and you never will. But the solution is not that you killed the righteous one, but the fact that he was the righteous one and that he died. That's the solution. You see, Stephen understood the righteous one. Think about, look what Stephen is doing. The law He's saying to the leaders that you're accusing me of speaking against the law that you supposedly so terribly love. You have never kept it and never will. And then the one who did keep the law perfectly, you killed. You murdered him. You killed the righteous one. I mean, you got to pay attention to what he, the words he's using at this point. He calls him the righteous one. That phrasing is rarely, if ever, used. I can't think of another example in the scriptures of where that phrase is used to speak of Jesus. Why would he call him the righteous one? Well, look at the case he's been mounting thus far. He's been saying, this law, this law, it's good, it's good, it's good, but you didn't keep it, you didn't keep it, you didn't keep it, you never will, but the righteous one is another way of him saying, you didn't keep this law, you didn't keep this law, you never will. But Jesus did. And that's the solution to your problem. That's the solution to the pattern. That's the solution to my life, Stephen. That's the solution to our lives, because we will never keep the law either. Jesus fulfilled the law. And what Stephen is doing, Stephen put the righteous one, that's the climax of Israel's history. It's the climax of his story. It's what the whole thing is building towards. I know Keller said this. 
where the other prophets delivered the people in spite of rejection and suffering, Jesus delivered the people through suffering and rejection. Why? Why? Because through the suffering and rejection and His death, He fulfills the law. So we ask the question, well, how? How, how, does this, how does this work? How do you fulfill any law? Here's how you fulfill a law. Right, let's just talk some technical terms for a few moments. You either obey it or you pay the penalty when you don't. You understand that the law has nothing to do to you, nothing to do with you, when either of those are done. So you disobey the law, so you pay the penalty, the law's done with you. It doesn't have any, like, yes, it still governs in a sense, but it doesn't have any uh, uh, bearing on you at that point. Like, it doesn't, uh, it's done with you. You either obey it or you pay it. Once either is done, the law has no claim on your life. So here's what happens. Jesus lives the perfect life and is righteous. The righteous one, Stephen calls him. He actually earns the blessing of eternal life because he lives in such a way that qualifies him to receive it upon his merit. So he lives in such a way that, that, the, that eternal life becomes his by his own working and his own doing. Then he goes to the cross, is rejected, betrayed, and he suffers and dies. And what's he doing there? He's taking the penalty for those of us who could never live and and earn eternal life. So here's what happens. You, You see him doing both. Like, he takes the penalty for us, but there was no penalty due to him. So it's through this rejection and through this suffering on our behalf that he actually delivers his people, that he delivers us. So when we believe in his work, in that work right there, what I just described, his righteous living and his death for our unrighteous living, He becomes then our righteous one. He becomes our righteousness. A fancy phrase was called double imputation. Like His righteousness is imputed to us as it becomes our righteousness. And our sinfulness was imputed to Him on the cross. It's the exchange, if you will, the substitution that takes place at the cross. And what we see, and what, what Stephen is arguing for, is that now, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. He's the place where this sacrifice takes place, the place in which we are able to meet God, and the place in which we do meet God, is where the presence of Christ is. There is the presence of God. That's where we meet God. How? Through His death and through His life. He, Jesus, is the bridge between God and humanity. He is the righteous one, the fulfiller of the law. And what Stephen's doing is he he takes this wonderful painting of their history and shows them that their only hope is Jesus, the righteous one. 
So as we think about like in our lives, as we talk, what's this unanswerable wisdom look like? It's going to look like Jesus being the righteous one. Him being the only hope. I mean, how often do we offer people hope of, well, if you just change your circumstances, all will be okay. Or, or if you just do this, and all will be okay. And, well, no, no, no. If you love and follow and trust Jesus, the righteous one, all will be okay. All will be okay. Physical hurt, you will be healed someday. Someone has wronged you or accused you of something wrong. Maybe they even want to take your life. Guess what? All will be okay. You haven't obeyed the law and you live with guilt and shame. Guess what? He took your guilt and shame. He's the righteous one. So listen, listen to the message of glorious hope that Stephen is telling these leaders to their face clearly takes his I mean they were probably arguing for days and he takes their history and shows them how they're without hope but there is hope verse 54 now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him like, think of the picture of anger that Luke is trying to paint for us. Look at the anger in response to the message of hope. And then look at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. And they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So much to say here. What I want you to see is Stephen's suffering and dying points to Jesus. His suffering, his death points to Jesus. First thing I want you to do, I want to look at the response of the people. First thing we see is that pride cannot deal with the truth. Pride cannot deal with the truth. It must eradicate it somehow. We all do this all the time. We are faced with the truth. And we do one of two things. We either have to negate the truth, like talk our way around the truth, or we have to discredit the one giving us the truth. And that somehow 
alleviates our uh, responsibility to deal with the truth. Watch the escalation in this passage. We started in verse 9 with simply opposition. Simply, they're coming against him. And this has now escalated then to, uh, or this, then, that then escalated to conspiring against him in verse 11. So it went from just, we don't agree with you, to now let's go get false witnesses to come against you. They created a lying campaign, a smearing campaign, if you will. And they arrest him based upon these charges. Then they make him face the charges of the false witnesses. Jesus, we see, endured such a similar trial. I want you to, I want you just to see this. This is what religious bullies and religious manipulators do. When they're confronted with wisdom and grace, they can't stand it. They can't do anything with the argument, so what do they do in this case? They go after the arguer. They create false witnesses. I want us to be very careful, because when we think about like coming against the truth, coming against the truth givers, that the way we do that can look multiple different ways. Here, it's them bringing up false witnesses. They're, they're hyperbolizing the truth. They're taking something that he's talking about and taking it to this level up here. Or they're taking it and twisting it to make it fit their agenda. They're not pulling something out of nowhere. They're not pulling this just random, oh, well, you know, Stephen, uh, you know, walked into the temple with dirty shoes, Right? So we should, we should uh, stone him. No, he's taking something he's saying and, and then twisting it ever so slightly. This is what religious bullies do. Let me be real honest with you. When you speak the truth to someone whose self-righteousness is king, they will seek a crucifixion other than Jesus's. You see, Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemous words about Moses and God. He was not doing this. The real issue was that the religious leaders were being exposed. And they needed someone to die in their place because Jesus wasn't enough. They needed some reason to crucify the messenger. So they go after him. Let me ask you this question at this moment, because now then we're going to turn and look at Stephen for just a few moments here. How do you walk with those who reject the wisdom of the gospel? Because that, that's the, right, that's just what, what's happening with Stephen now. Now he's now he's got a. We're watching how he's responding, and Luke is highlighting and telling us, and certainly the father through Luke is telling us what is happening, what's important for us to notice. So look at how Stephen responds. But the question is this, how do you walk with those who reject the wisdom of the God? How do you walk with them in a way that points them and others watching to Jesus? Some of you will be facing people like this as you gather. 
over the next few months. Others of you face people like this daily, regularly, all the time. People that you've tried to speak the truth of the gospel to, and they don't want to hear it. Obviously, that can look a couple different ways. It could look like those who just don't want the gospel at all. It could also look like those who, who seemingly have a walk with Christ, but and an understanding of the gospel, but don't want it to be applied to this area of their life. They got that part on their own just fine. So I want you to watch how does Stephen respond in such a way that points others to Christ. It's such a marvelous thing. I'm going to quote someone here. He says this, As the wolves begin to attack, Stephen catches a glimpse of heaven. Let's look at Stephen's glimpse of heaven. I think this is not only key to how and why Stephen responds the way he does when he is being extremely physically even persecuted at this point, but why his life has looked this way thus far. See, at the right hand of God, right, we have this throne room. It's the courtroom. You know, most nations throughout history, the throne room was the courtroom, right? In our, in our country, it's different, right? We have a throne room, and we have courtrooms, and lots of those things. And, but for most of history, and at this time, certainly, the, the throne room was a courtroom. But this is what's interesting particularly here is you've got to look what is Jesus doing in Stephen's glimpse of heaven? What is he doing? It's different than, I believe, all other recounts of Jesus in heaven. Jesus isn't sitting. Jesus is standing. You go, well, what, what's up with that? Is that special? Yeah, I, I believe it is. In other depictions, Jesus is sitting depicting the truth that his work is done, that he has paid the penalty for the sins of his people, that his work is finished. That's the idea of being communicated when it talks about him sitting. But this time he isn't sitting. This time he's standing. Oh, this is a marvelous picture. What is someone doing in a courtroom who's standing? What's he doing? You've watched enough court shows, I'm sure. The person standing is the one doing the argument. He's the one talking. He's the one making an appeal. The one standing in the courtroom is the one advocating. Scholar F.F. Bruce said this, While Stephen was confessing Christ before man, Stephen sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. That's the picture. How is Stephen able to respond in the midst of persecution? Because he looks and he's given a glimpse of heaven where Jesus is standing before the Father saying, yes, Stephen's a sinner. But I paid the price for his sins. I took care of the problem. Listen, Stephen was seeing visually what he had just taught verbally. 
You see, the reality is this. When you believe in Christ and His righteousness becomes yours, He becomes your righteous one. And when the righteous Father looks at you, what does He see? He sees the righteous one. Stephen sees the righteous Father looking at him, and Jesus is saying, my people have sinned, and they need punished, but I have taken the punishment. And it would not be right or just for you to take two punishments. Keller said this, the moment that Stephen is in an earthly courtroom being condemned, he sees in the only courtroom that matters, his commendation. He sees when he's being condemned on earth that he's being commended in heaven. Listen, at this point, nobody on earth is speaking up for Stephen, but Jesus was. And the heaven one is forever. The earthly one was not. That's why Stephen had the face of an angel. Because he knew this truth. Because he saw this by the power of the Spirit. This is is what Stephen's saying. Who cares what they're saying about me? I am commended by the Father. Indeed, the reality is, is I have not kept the law just like them. But I am commended by the Father. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of the righteous one. Listen, Stephen didn't just know this with his head. The Holy Spirit helped him to sense it with his heart at this moment. That's the idea of this catching a glimpse, of of seeing this. That's only done by the Spirit. And to the degree to which you and I are rejoicing in and in awe of how much we are loved and honored by God and Christ and the Spirit because of the work of the righteous one, to that degree to which we know it and are rejoicing in it is the degree to which we'll be able to face anything. That's the secret. Listen, Stephen saw the ultimate courtroom and he was being commended. He was able, Stephen was able to sit in the presence of those who had done so much wrong and murdering him and have compassion on them. Why? Because as he sees that courtroom, as he sees Christ standing there, He knows and sees the compassion that was given to him. He was watching that compassion play out in heaven. That's how how Stephen could deal with suffering in such a way that points to God. Listen, our culture gives us nothing to handle suffering like Stephen did here. Here's what our culture says, and here's what many of us live by every day. I I know myself, I do. We live for self. Our culture says live for self. The highest good is your own personal freedom and happiness. To be able to do what you want when you want. 
listen, none of us in this room realize how much that is entangled in our hearts. You'll spend the rest of your life by the power of the Spirit and abiding in the Word. God will peel one part of that root back and rip it out, another part of this root back and rip it out. We spend so much of our lives chasing this, living for self. And this is what happens. That idea, like the, the idea of, 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 of self and happiness and me and what I want being the highest good, do you realize that that is well within the reach of suffering? That your joy based on that is well within the reach of suffering. So when suffering comes along, it just goes and it's all gone. Suffering destroys this all the time. When suffering comes, it destroys then. If that's where joy, if that's where meaning of life is found, then when suffering comes, it destroys the very meaning of your life, at least that which you are believing at that moment. You have no strength over this. No ability to control it except to run away from it. And so what do we do? We run from them all the time. We run chasing the next thing that would fulfill us, that would, that would satisfy our indulgences. We run. As I was listening to Keller this week, he reminded me of something that St. Augustine said. Life is about ordering your love properly. Life is about ordering your love properly. Love God first and so on. All of our problems come from disordered loves. And here's the truth. Only love of the immutable will bring tranquility. Here's what St. Here's what Augustine was saying. Is that when our when our meaning for life, when our fill is only made by God, when our hope and our rest and our peace is found only in Him, do you realize that at that moment, your joy, your peace, your tranquility is untouchable by suffering? When you look into the courtroom and you can see Jesus standing there before the Father on your behalf, your joy is untouchable by anything. No amount of suffering. Because it can't touch that. It's out of its reach. Now, now it might get at it, right? It might try to reach up there and grab it. But it can't. Why? Because He's immutable. Listen, Stephen's love was ordered correctly in this moment. That's the only explanation for his response. Only if the thing you love most is something that can never be taken away from you, what you love most can you possibly face life with tranquility. Only then. So let me ask you this question. How is Stephen pointing us to Christ in his death? How, how is he able like, to do this? How is he able to point us 
to Christ in his death, with the way he responds to those who are persecuting him. By his supreme love of Christ. What's happened is he sees the courtroom. Oh, I love you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I've been forgiven of so much. You've shown me such great compassion. Father, would you do the same thing for them? It's just like they don't deserve it right now, neither did I. Because by his supreme love of Christ. But here's another question. How is Stephen able to point us to Christ in his suffering and death? Meaning like, how is this supreme love of Christ possible in Stephen? Because of the supreme loveliness of Christ. Because of the supreme loveliness of Christ. That's the picture Luke's painting for us. Because Stephen's heart was filled with his love for Christ, because he wanted Christ more than anything, this is how Stephen is able to ask God to forgive them. Now Stephen, we know, cannot forgive them of their sins on God's behalf. That Only God can do that. But he asks God to forgive them. And only people who know the forgiveness of Jesus at a deep level as such can offer such a request. Let's move on in our last few minutes. Saul himself would become the answer to Stephen's prayer. You realize that? Saul himself. The man, listen, here's the people are stoning him. They take off their uh, extra garments and lay them at Saul's feet as if to say, let me free up my physical ability so that I can go throw harder, quicker, and more stones. And Saul, standing watching, approves of everything. My goodness. But Saul would soon find forgiveness through Christ. Listen, I'm convinced that, that Stephen, that, that Luke is able to recount such a story because I think Paul is the one that told Luke about the story. I think Paul is the one that recounted this story to Luke for him to describe. And I think that this story, what happens here is what changed Paul's life. Yes, he got the road to Damascus, and I'm not denying what God does there, but it was this story. It was this story. If you look at the themes of this story, they are the themes of the theology of Paul. Paul was changed by this story. He must have remembered it very well, and it must have sunk in very deep. Let me ask you this question. How is it that Stephen changed the world? Like We're going to see this again, continue to unfold. I don't think it was by what Stephen said. I think it was by his suffering. I think it was by Stephen's suffering and the way he handled it and pointed to Christ in his suffering that he changed the world. Why? Because Paul was changed. Listen, why was he speaking? Why in this suffering? He was, it was a face that said like a, that of an angel. He wasn't snarling. He wasn't angry. He wasn't afraid. He had no ill will. He was filled with love. And I guarantee you, Paul had never seen anybody suffer like this. And even though in the moment he looks on it with approval, 
sometime later, the Spirit will grab a hold of Paul's heart and I'm sure bring to his memory this story. It was how Stephen suffered. The brilliance of Stephen's suffering is what cut Paul to the heart. In verse 1 through 3, and Saul, right, who later becomes Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I want to end with this thought. Someone like Christ will change the world. Someone whose life that points to Christ changes the world. Here's what we see here at the end. That while suffering may be inevitable, God's mission is unstoppable. Someone said this week. While suffering may be inevitable, God's mission is unstoppable. So let me ask this question again. Do you really want to be like Christ? Do you really want to be like Jesus? To be like Jesus means that suffering will sometimes be inevitable. It will happen. It will be unavoidable. To stand and proclaim His glory is to defame the glory of man. That is a necessity. To proclaim Jesus' righteousness is to defame the righteousness of man. That's offensive. To proclaim Jesus is the only way to heaven is to claim the inability of man. But listen, even though you and I might suffer even die as brothers and sisters of ours around the world are dying every day, the church and Christ's mission will move forward. It is unstoppable. And that's what we see in Acts 8. God uses all this bad for our good and certainly for His glory. You see, God changes the world through Stephen because largely Paul is changed. Look, look at what happens in here. That's what I want you to see. Don't miss this. Jesus had told them, take my gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Judea, Samaria. To this point, had they done that? No. Have they obeyed Christ in taking the gospel to the nations? No. They were all still in Jerusalem. But what happens when Stephen dies? What's God do? He scatters them. He pushes them out. You think that's by chance? It's God's providential moving of the gospel out of Jerusalem to the rest of the world. It says, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God uses the persecution to push them out. Certainly they are scattered, but they are going. And they will go. Listen, your suffering will lead to glory if you know how to do what Stephen did. If you know how to look to heaven and see what Jesus did and is doing.
your suffering will lead to glory. If the Holy Spirit makes these gospel realities real in your heart, you can face anything and face it well. This is not just a cute cliche. Listen, every time suffering comes, we realize that our loves are not properly ordered. We're loving something else. Whenever my joy is stripped away, I realize that I am loving something else. Whenever I'm lacking the confidence to share the gospel, to proclaim the truth, to have the conversations I need to have, I am loving something else more than Christ. Stephen was able to do two things because of his love for Christ. He was able to say the truth and what needed to be said in a moment that he probably knew would cost him his life. And then as it was costing him his life, he was able to say, Father, forgive them. What was happening? What, what was happening for Stephen? He was loving Christ, and then out of his love for Christ, what came? Love for his enemies. Love for his enemies. Love for those who were causing him his pain. Every time suffering comes, we realize our loves are not ordered properly. And thank God that's the case. So that the Spirit and the Word can get in there, and the body of Christ even, and help us navigate that and reorder those loves. Eventually, as the Spirit and you're abiding in the Word and these truths become greater reality and you, the Spirit makes them more alive to you, this, these gospel truths, eventually you will see glory both in this life and in the next. Let's pray. Father, may we abandon our loves for so many other things. But may you rip the deep roots these have in our hearts, in our minds. Would you just rip them out, please? But please do it gently. <laughs> but we know that the, the force at which these things need to be reordered we trust them to your good hand that even though it might be painful, physically, emotionally, mentally, even though it might be painful, it is still for our good. It is still for our good. And Father, it is for your glory. It is for your glory, Father. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work of your spirit, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.